with me tonight in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes once more. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 this time. Tonight we're going to be looking at seven verses. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verses 1 through 7. And if you're using your song books, go ahead and mark number 322. That'll be the song of invitation after our study tonight. It is a blessing to be back this afternoon. And uh, it's a little stuffy in here to me, but uh, I know that's probably very, very good for y'all. It's, it's stuffy. It's, it's just what you want, right? Just as you like it. The temperature, Helen's nodding her head, yeah. And I bet Shirley's back there. Where is Shirley? You, you're not. Uh, oh. I left the temperature warm just for her, and she's, oh, man, okay, well, anyhow, I hope everyone else is enjoying it, it's a little stuffy for me, but that's all right, isn't it, um, it's comfortable, so, tonight we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, and the title of the lesson is Fear God, Fear God, that's what we're going to be focusing on, and that was read uh, by Brother Moore uh, before the lesson. And uh, tonight we're going to be emphasizing that. I do want to reemphasize, Brother Payne mentioned it. By the way, Brother Payne, uh, Roger, the announcements, Lord's Supper. He's going to be leading us in closing prayer tonight. You know what? When Benny is not here and Hal are not here, both of them, you can tell it. (laughs) You can feel it. You know it. But uh, thank you, Roger, for stepping up, stepping up. Um, but uh, we have a new sister in Christ tonight, right? So if you have not uh, uh, been introduced to Sister Barger, she's back there with Nathan, and just go back there and and tell her welcome to the family. I'm uh, excited, and I know that Nathan is uh, excited for her. So welcome to the family. All right, Ecclesiastes. We've been emphasizing the purpose of the point of the book, uh, vanity of material and earthly things. Uh, when we spend our time and our efforts chasing after the things of this world, we're chasing just the wind. We're wasting our time, spinning our wheels, um, and in the end, all we'll, uh, all we'll have is nothing. Uh, the main point of the book is the importance of serving God throughout life, because to follow the things of this world is going to end you in despair and destruction. So the main focus is, of course, the vanity of worldly things, the importance of God. The quest for satisfaction. Man can search out in all kinds of areas of life under the sun. And what he can find in the amusements and wine or work or wealth or women or wisdom, human wisdom, he's going to, again, wind up with what when he's all said and done? Nothing. And... We have emphasized that the purpose and the order of everything under the sun is to be enjoyed. The time that we have, the blessings that God puts in those time frames, we're to enjoy those. But nothing under the sun lasts forever. And that God is in control of everything, even the things that are bad. Listen, God allows them for a purpose, and that is to test the hearts of men. God is in control, and we need to trust Him and look to Him for all of His wisdom and his guidance and of course his promises and then in our last lesson we emphasized in chapters three and four the problems that we face in life the problem of injustice the problem of death the problem of oppression the problem of self-inflicted wounds you know the stupid choices that we make um, and we bring that on ourselves. being alone 
Loneliness is a problem. And, of course, the transitory nature of fame and prestige. You rise to the top of the world, if you will, but it ain't going to last long because somebody's going to be there to knock you off. It's not going to last. So, that brings us to chapter 5, and the reality is some think, well, this is an interlude. Uh, this is just Solomon taking a break. But I, I think there's a bigger purpose, and it fits in the scheme of things, okay? We've seen all of the problems. Now, there are actually two sides of the points that Solomon's going to be making in this study tonight. One is the benefit of worshiping God, on one hand, and on the other hand, the problem and the vanity of worshiping Him incorrectly. And, of course, he's going to talk about the futility of appearing, approaching, worshiping, sacrificing to Him in ignorance and in a way that is not designed by Him. So walk prudently, he says, when you go to the house of God. And draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. Then you make, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there is also vanity. But fear God. But fear God when all is said and done. Now, Life under the sun is not made better by false worship. You know, that's, that statement right there, think about it. Life here on this planet is not made better by false worship. But you know what? The way that so many people approach worship, the way that so many people approach God, it's as though they think that it does. They think that they can worship God any way they choose, any way they please. They can do whatever they want. They can live their life however they want. And then on a couple of days a week, they can come in, or maybe just one day a week, come in and do some kind of ritualistic activity. And everything's okay. And ignore the sovereignty and the authority of God in their life. Solomon's saying, that's foolish. And your life is not really made better by such activities. Life is not made better by false worship. God is the object of worship. And, and certainly He is the ultimate worth. I mean, he's the ultimate, He's the ultimate sovereign of the universe. So the ultimate vanity would be to worship Him unacceptably. To ignore His sovereignty and act like we appreciate Him. To ignore His authority... And act like we're obeying Him when in fact we're only obeying ourselves. That is the height of hypocrisy and vanity. The ultimate mistake in life is to serve God in vain. That's the ultimate mistake. 
Now, I, I, you know, I realize, well, what about those atheists out there that, okay, that's, yeah, that's bad, right? That's really, really bad. But really, how much better is a person who does not regard the authority of God, but just professes that he's a follower of God and ignores everything that God has to say? Is he really any better? No. He's actually worse off because he's just making a mockery of everything in his life. He's a hypocrite. You know, of all the things in the Bible, you know, Jesus seems to hate hypocrisy more than anything else. Now, I know that's not the case, necessarily all sin. But he is very vocal about the sins of hypocrisy. And the scribes and Pharisees, you know, they were never condemned for what they were doing according to God's law. They were only condemned for their hypocritical approach to God and their vanity in binding the traditions and commandments of men rather than the words of God. Just because someone goes to the Lord's house does not mean their worship and service is acceptable, right? The house here is clearly the temple, Solomon's temple. And he says, when you go to the house of God and draw near to here rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, when you approach God in, the, in his house, the temple was God's holy place. And there was a certain attitude that people must take when they approach God in his holy place. When men partook of the things that God ordained as being holy, they had to be very careful in how they behaved, right? And we see that throughout the Old Testament. Reverence is demanded in the use of things dedicated to the service of God. I've got a question. We read the Old Testament and we see this from the beginning, from Genesis chapter 4 actually, where we find Cain not making a sacrifice that was accepted by God. All the way through you get into Leviticus chapter 10, you see all the examples in the Old Testament of people who disregarded God's sovereignty and mishandled holy things and the consequences for that. And now we jump over to the New Testament and we think all of a sudden, oh, we're under the New Testament now. Now we're under grace. Now we can do whatever we want. We can serve God however we please. Are we worshiping a different God than was under the Old Testament? No. He's still the same God. And he still is just as holy as he's always been. And the things that he has deemed holy are just as holy, in fact more so, than those things in the Old Testament, which were just types and shadows of the true holiness that God has established in the New Covenant. And we think that we can disregard those things, that we can profane those things and treat them as they were common things, and God not be angered at that. Just because someone goes to the Lord's house does not mean that their worship and service is accepted by God. Right? Uh, Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 12. You know, Isaiah, as, as he is uh, discussing, you know, emphasizing the, the scene that he sees and what he has experienced in the presence of God, he understood something that we really need to grasp ourselves. We need to understand. In Isaiah chapter 1, 
Isaiah 1 and verse 12. This is what the prophet says, if I can get there. Isaiah 1 and verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my court? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moon, the Sabbath, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Their life, their behavior outside of their place of worship was sinful, despicable in the sight of God. Don't think that you can just walk into the house of God and now everything's okay. No. God pleaded with them to cleanse themselves. Come now and let us reason together. Going down to verse 18. You know, God was wanting to forgive them. God was wanting to accept them. But they had to repent and they had to turn back to Him. But just because we go into a house of prayer, in Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14, read that text sometime and think about the sacrifices that the people were offering to God. God said no. He wasn't accepting it. He says, watch your step. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God. Watch your step. Walk circumspectly. Be very careful. Cain is an example of not watching your step. Genesis 4, 1 through 12. Cain offered a sacrifice before God, but God did not accept that sacrifice. Why not? Have you ever thought about that? Why not? Some say, well, Cain's attitude just wasn't right. Well, there's no question that his attitude wasn't right. But when you go to Hebrews chapter 11, we're told there that Abel's sacrifice was accepted. Why? Because Abel offered his by faith. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So in other words, you can deduce from that that Abel did what God told him to do. Abel offered an animal sacrifice. Now, Cain did not offer an animal sacrifice. He offered a sacrifice from his own crops. He was a farmer. But God rejected it. In fact, God responded to Cain as Cain was displeased with God's rejection. God said, if you do well, you'll be accepted. The point is, he did not do well. He did something different than what God said. When we take our approach to God, our service and our worship to God, flippantly, presumptuously, without being careful in how we approach him. God is not pleased. We see the example of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. The sons of Aaron, who were the appropriate priests. They were the ones who were to be offering incense to God. But it says that they offered strange fire before the Lord, fire which he had not commanded them. Fire which he had not commanded them. There is a very interesting statement in Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 3, which says this. And Moses said to Aaron, now let me, let me back up. Let me back up to verse, verse 1. Just, let me just read the text. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, 
and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, that's their father, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people I must be glorified. When did that principle ever change? The way the people behave today in their worship, they think it has. You have Saul, who offered a sacrifice to the Lord because he was afraid of the Philistines. In 1 Samuel 13, verses 8 through 14, he acted presumptuously. He was told to wait on Samuel, but Samuel was delayed in getting there, so he went ahead and he offered the sacrifice himself. Saul wasn't of Levi. He was not a Levite. He was not a priest. He did not have the authority to offer that that sacrifice. But he offered it. Samuel told him he was a fool. We see again in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, where Saul again acts foolishly, presumptuously, not doing what God commands him to do. We have... The example of David in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, where he tries to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And you would think that he is really glorifying God, because he builds this ox cart specifically made to transport the Ark of the Covenant. It's a brand new cart. And he takes the cart and to where the Ark is, and he's going to transport it to Jerusalem... And he has men loaded onto the cart, and as they begin to transport it, they go through Achan's threshing floor, and the oxen stumbles, and Uzzah reaches up and touches the state of the ark to keep it from falling, and he dies, because God had said, whoever touches it will die. And David and all the people were afraid of God that day. They should have been afraid of him before. But David returns to Jerusalem, leaving the ark there, and he goes back and trying to figure out what went wrong, he goes back to the law and he reads how the ark is supposed to be transported according to the law. And then he gets the priest together and he says, you should have done it this way to begin with. And so should David. They should have done it that way to begin with. Watch your step, in other words. You know, we see this principle over and over again. Jeroboam after the split between the northern tribes and the the southern tribe of Judah, between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, Jeroboam becoming king of the northern tribes, he erects a couple of altars, one in Dan and one in Bethel. And he did that so that the people of Israel, the northern tribes, would not go back to Jerusalem to worship because he was afraid that their heart would be turned back to Rehoboam and he would lose his power. So he establishes these two altars. In the process, God sends a prophet to him in 1 Kings chapter 13 and prophesies and talking about their, all the priests and everything that he had established, the altars and everything, was going to be destroyed. And even called Josiah by name, the one who would do it. And so Jeroboam, anyway, had set this up and he did this according to his own heart. 
And eventually, he, yeah, he's, he's destroyed. He reaches judgment. You know what's interesting? From 1 Kings chapter 15, and verse 34, where the next king is appointed in, in Israel, the northern tribes, and every king after that, every single one, you know what it said about them? They continued in the evil ways of their father Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And that was they continued to practice the idolatry that Jeroboam has established. You know, that's kind of like a lot of things today. When denominations are established by a man and people continue in those things that are not found in Scripture, they continue it you know, generation after generation after generation. Time, the passing of time does not make those things okay. If they're not of God, they're not of God. And people need to learn such lessons as that. It's a serious matter. Uzziah, Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26, a king, a good king, until he burned incense in the temple, and of course he was warned, don't do that. And he did it anyway. And God struck him with leprosy. But you have all of these examples of, of men not walking prudently when they approached God and when they dealt with holy things. Now, what should all of this teach us about how we are to approach God? He says, draw near to hear. When you go to the house of God, and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. Listening involves paying attention for the purpose of obeying, of doing. Okay? In 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, we saw uh, Samuel said to obey is better than sacrifice. That was one of the excuses that Saul threw out. He said that I have, and the people of Israel have brought all of these things back from the Amalekites so that we can offer sacrifices to God. That wasn't what God told him to do. God said for him to utterly destroy all those things. And so Samuel says to obey is better than sacrifice. You know what? Saul should have listened to God. But he didn't. We should be eager to hear what God says. So often we are so busy that we don't have the time to hear. We'd much rather talk. You know, we'd much rather be busy and, and doing things instead of listening to God's Word. More and more people are very short on their attention span. And that's not a good thing. I assure you, it's not a good thing. We should be eager to hear, and the reality is those things that really interest us, we will be eager to hear. God cannot be worshipped by ignorance either. That's another point. For they do not know that they do evil. But draw near to God so that you may hear. We need to hear what God wants us to do. And we need to know so that we can please God acceptably. You know, in Acts the 17th chapter, verse 23, Paul is in Athens. And as he's walking down the street of Athens, what does he see? He sees all these altars to all of these gods, right? And then he comes to this one altar that says, to the unknown God. And Saul says, let me declare to you the God whom you worship in ignorance, whom you do not know. They did not know God, and they could not worship him in that condition. Paul had to teach them who he was. God cannot be worshipped by those ignorant of him in his will. We have to learn what God wants. That's why the, the, the instruction, draw near to hear rather than do the sacrifice of fools. 
Now, the sacrifice of fools, once again, these, these are not necessarily the sacrifices of the overtly wicked. You know, the, the, these are simply people who are sacrificing, but they're unaware of the importance of what they're doing. They take it lightly, in other words, and they do it in ignorance. They're unaware that they're doing evil. This would include treating lightly that which is holy. They, they do not properly respect that which is holy. When you do not properly discern the Lord's body, when you partake of the Lord's Supper, how do you think the Lord views that? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. And I don't know anything more holy than that. We ought to take it seriously. No amount of emphasis by the way, on grace, on God's mercy and God's love. No amount of emphasis on those things can overlook and can do away with the holiness and the righteousness and the glory of God that he, and, and, and His demand that we regard Him as holy. And it, and it does not allow us, God's grace and God's mercy does not allow us to take liberties with Him. That does not mean, you know, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, and verse 1, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? God forbid. What is sin there, by the way? Sin is doing that which is against God's will, right? This violation of God's law. That's what sin is. Can we continue to violate God's law so that grace may abound? The answer is no. So what does that mean and what does that demand? That means that we follow God's law. That means that we follow His will so that grace may abound. We must do what he says. But so many people just dismiss the things that God says as being, oh, that's no big deal. Now we're under grace. No. That doesn't work. We are under grace. We've been forgiven of our sins. But now God expects us to worship and honor him because he is holy. And we even have more of a motive to worship him with that kind of reverence and respect because of what he's done for us. We'll get back to that thought here in a moment. Unfortunately, so many people, and in many circles, and entertainment has become the craze of worship these days. You know? Entertainment. Um, these praise bands and worship bands, and you know, they, they travel all over, and making money, charging money to come and watch them perform and call it worship. That's what they're doing. Entertainment has taken the place of reverence for God and for His will. Man says, come, feel better about yourself. Come and feel good. Come and do what you want. You know what? Religion today has taken the old Nike slogan. If it feels good, do it. That's what they've done. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let me that is an affront to God. That is something that God, that's a slap in His face. That's what that is. So walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to here rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. Man says, come. Let's feel good about this. God says, come and be prepared to hear. Come and be prepared to obey my will. You turn away from your sins and, and you change your attitudes and you submit to my will. Be prepared to be rebuked. Be prepared to be admonished to do what's right. 
2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. By the way, that is in the New Testament. That's where Paul tells Timothy to preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine, but they'll call to themselves teachers. And having itching ears, they'll turn their ears from the truth and the fables. And boy, hasn't that happened? They're offering the sacrifice of fools. God made it very clear that he does not tolerate irreverence. Over and over and over in the Old Testament, my friend, we're still worshiping the same God. Yes, the how has been changed. That's true. And I'm thankful for that. But our reverence is still demanded. Those who enter, entered in before the presence of God, went into the temple, they knew that death was a consequence of showing irreverence for His things that are holy. They understood that. The same respect and purity is demanded by Christians today. Still demanded. You know, in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, and throughout chapter 10, you know, in chapter 10, verse 25, it talks about assembling together, you know, forsake not the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is. Then it goes on and it talks about if we sin willfully, verse 26. And then he talks about how, you know, if, if those who violated the law of Moses, by the testimony of two or three witnesses, were stoned to death, how much worse or sore punishment should be thought worthy of those who have trodden underfoot the Son of God and counted the grace by which they were sanctified a common thing? That's what we're talking about here. We have accounted the grace and the wonderful love and grace of God in Jesus Christ and His commandments, His instructions, and what His will is for us when it comes to worship. When we ignore that, we are counting the blood of Christ and what Christ has done for us as a common thing. When we discount God's will that He is authorized through His Son, Jesus Christ, we are counting Jesus Christ as just a common thing. We can do what we want. It doesn't work that way. Then Solomon says, watch your mouth. Do not be rash with your mouth. And let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven... And you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. Do not question God's wisdom, God's justice. Now, I think that's one of the main things here. So many people, when they see all the calamities in life and all the problems that we see under the sun, we're tempted to question God's sovereignty or His righteousness. And that's foolish. To rashly accuse God of wrongdoing, questioning His righteousness, blaming Him for evil. fellow on Facebook this week claimed that God created evil. Now, there is a passage in the King James translation that God says that it, were, it says that God is the cause of all evil. Now, the word evil there should be translated properly calamity, such as that comes upon all those who disregard his sovereignty, that disregard his authority, and that rebel against him. Like Sodom and Gomorrah. They faced calamity, didn't they? You know why? Yeah, it tells us why. Because of homosexuality. 
When you look in, even back further in Genesis chapter 6, calamity fell upon the whole world. Why? Because every thought was evil. So calamity fell upon them. That's what that word there is talking about. But God in no way, in no sense, is the author of moral evil. It, wickedness does not happen because God ordained it. Wickedness happens because sin is in the world. Because men sin. And it's foolish to wrongly charge God for such. But, this would also inc include insincere and careless prayer. And rote prayer and things. You know, when you go into the house of God, you need to be careful. Not only of what you accuse God of, but in how you approach Him in worship. One must be careful about bringing even one word before the Lord. Now, that's interesting where he says, Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything. That's literally one word. We need to take serious the things that we say. And Solomon emphasizes, Because God is in heaven. You're on earth. What does that say to you? God is in heaven. His authority. His glory. His holiness. You're on earth. You're a man. You're sinful. And you need to give him proper respect. He's your maker. Your creator. And he demands the deepest reverence. Presumptuous, presumptuous chatter shows disrespect for his majesty. Is the point that the wise man is saying here. For a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by his many words. Uh, there's a comparison here, and a dream comes through much activity. In other words, you know, when you work hard all day, I mean, you've really been busy, you, you're just wore out. Have you noticed that you dream more? You ever noticed that? The tireder you are, the more dreams you'll have. Um, it's, work, it's the way it's worked for me. And uh, it's like a dream or a nightmare results in assessed effort. Uh, you got too many earthly cares, too many things on your mind. Folly is often the result of too many words. In other words, the more that you talk, the more that you use vain repetitions, the more that you embellish the things that God says or uh, things that you're saying to God, like God needs to hear all that pretty language, right? God needs to hear all that flowery stuff. You know, be straight forward, be articulate, but be straightforward. The more a fool, the more of a fool we make ourselves to be, the more that we talk. In Matthew chapter 6 and verses 5 through 8, Jesus talks about those scribes and Pharisees and their prayers, and they go out on the street corner so that everyone will see how they pray. But something else he says about their, their prayers, he says, when you pray, you go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in secret in a secret place, and your father will see who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows the things you need you have need of. Before you ask. And then he gives this simple example of a prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not 
Lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Very simple. But many words is what we often hear when men begin to embellish. And Matthew 23 and verse 14, the same point is made there. Watch your mouth. Verse 4, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. God expects us to keep our word. The fool is the person who makes promises to God that he or she can't keep. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. You know, when one becomes a Christian, they're committing themselves, making a commitment, a vow, if you will, to the Lord. You know, the whole idea or the concept of confessing our faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, these are not and must not just be words that come out of our mouth, right? They truly must be what is in our heart. And that acknowledgement recognizes who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And in our baptism, what we're doing is we're pledging our life, giving our life to Him. It is like a marriage, if you will. Right? And we're making a commitment to Jesus Christ. Now certainly, it's not better, you know, it's, to not become a Christian is not a good thing. But the point is, it's better to not vow than to vow and not pay. In other words, what he's saying is, it's going to be worse for you because you're the one who is committed to the Lord. And you're the one who turned away from Him, if you do. Another application of this principle, of course, is in marriage. When we are joined in marriage, married people give vows to one another. And that's before, not just your mate, but also before God. God holds us to our promises. God holds you to your vows. Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Talks about the wife of the covenant of your youth. And when a man and a woman are married, they are united together before God, and they are joined by God and Jesus even makes the point in Matthew chapter 19. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Why? Because it's all premised upon a vow. Two people are giving themselves to each other in marriage. In fact, when you go to Matthew chapter 19, and you look at this text, you know, Jesus makes his argument, first of all, that from the beginning, this is the way that it was. God made one man, one woman, and he joined them together. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not men separate. And of course, the, the Jews respond, well, back in Deuteronomy chapter 24, God allowed Moses to give us a writing of divorcement, that the husband can give his wife a writing of divorcement and send her away. But Jesus, Jesus said, um, from the beginning, that was not so. Jesus then says, whoever puts away his wife, except it be for fornication and marries another, commits adultery. Why? I'll tell you why. God holds you to your vows. You are still bound to that person. And you will be bound to that person. There's only one exception for that. 
Whoever puts away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marries another. That little, except it be for fornication. That's it. Now, after Jesus talked about marriage, his disciples' response to that was, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. You know what? That goes back to what Solomon said, isn't it? It's better not to vow than to vow and not to pay. And the disciples got the message. They understood that point. And Jesus' response was, of course, not everyone can receive this saying. That's true. Only those who truly want to follow the Lord and be in harmony with His will, will. So, when you make a vow to God, you pay it. In verses 6 and 7, do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Um, again, it's, it's about what you say. Be careful. Don't sin with your lips because every word is going to be held against you, right? Every word is going to be brought up in judgment. You need to be careful about what you say. But there's another little aspect here, uh, nor say before the messenger of God, like when Nathan came to David and Nathan gave the parable of the rich man who took that poor man's little sheep and gave it to, for, as food to this wayfaring fellow. And David's response was that rich fellow ought to die. And then Nathan said, you are the man. What was David's response to that? I have sinned. He confessed his sin, recognized that his condition was lost. He was, he was separated from God. He was in need of God's forgiveness. But many times what people will do is they'll make excuses when the messenger of God comes. And they'll say, so, oh, I'm sorry, or you may not really mean it, right? Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? We need to be sincere in what we say. We need to mean it. When we say, I'm sorry, we need to mean it. When we say, I'm wrong, we need to understand we are wrong and do everything we can to correct it. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and in many words there is also vanity, but fear God. We're right back to the point. My friend, God demands we show Him proper reverence. That we show Him respect in all that we do in His presence. When we come before Him to worship Him, this is serious. We, and we need to take it seriously. We are before our holy God, our Redeemer, our Savior. And the sacrifice that He made for us on our behalf is worth our reverence, our respect. It is worth our time. It is worth our lives and our hearts. God demands that we say what we mean and mean what we say. God expects us to be truthful and honest. And He expects us to keep our vows. When we say to him, I am yours, he holds us to it. When we say to another person that we are theirs and they are ours, and we enter into a marriage vow, that is it. Keep it. We live in a day and time where such things don't hold much water anymore. 
Worshiping God is not that important anymore. You know, as far as, I mean, again, if it feels good, do it. That's certainly not what Solomon is telling us here. We need to realize that there is real danger in approaching God flippantly, presumptuously. We must approach Him with reverence and godly fear, right? We must approach Him according to His instructions. Certainly we have reason to praise and glorify God. And of course the greatest provision of all is His Son Jesus Christ. But we also must remember that His Son Jesus Christ is the one whom He has placed in authority over all things. And we must hear Him. He is the one who has spoken from heaven. And we must hear Him. And if we do not hear Him, we will be cut off from, our, from His people. And that is why, as in Hebrews chapter 12, it was emphasized, beginning there in verse 21, going down through the end of the chapter, God is a consuming fire, and He will judge His people. That's to you and I. And if we, when we worship Him, we must worship Him with reverence and godly fear. Maybe you're here this evening and you need to make some changes in your life and you, you realize that there are things in your life that you desperately need to change because you've taken God flippantly. Whether it's just that you need to obey Him and become His child through Christ or maybe your worship has not been what God wants and demands. Make changes, whatever that is. If we can help you, please let us while together we stand.